Hi, and welcome to the Canada's History Podcast. My name is Joanna Dawson, and today I'm joined by Heather Sparling, an ethnomusicologist from Cape Breton University. Heather is here to tell us about her latest project, which involves looking at Canadian disaster songs. Thanks for joining us, Heather. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. So first of all, can you tell us a bit about uh, the field of ethnomusicology, and um, particularly because we're a history organization here, how it might be used to help us understand the past? Sure. Ethnomusicology sounds like a really intimidating term, but it really is the, the term ethno as an ethnic is about people, and musicology is the study of music. So we're really about the study of music in culture and people's music and the role that music plays in societies. So how does music help people? Why do people make music? What role does it play? So in, this, in ethnomusicology, actually history has not been a part of ethnomusicology until relatively recently. We've mostly been studying more contemporary practices of music, but increasingly we're seeing ethnomusicologists becoming interested in the role of history in helping us to understand why musics are the way they are today. How did they get to be the way they are? What sort of historical roles have they played? And how have those roles changed over time and why? So that's the the relationship that I would say is there between history and ethnomusicology. And so I think your your latest project that you're here to tell us about um, does tie in nicely with the field of history, the disaster songs in Canada. So can you tell us about the project and how it got started? Sure. It was kind of a funny story. Um, I was working on something completely unrelated and out of the blue. I got an invitation from somebody I didn't know uh, named Joe Scanlon, who is a sociologist of disaster, an area that I didn't know existed, um, who was working at Carleton University and was interested in understanding how disasters are represented in song. He had already explored how disasters are represented in the media, and there's quite a bit of research as well on disaster representation in films. And generally speaking, there have been a a number of problems with the representation of disasters in those areas. He theorized that music would be a different situation, that it would be more uh, representative of what happens in disasters, and he wanted to study that, but he wanted a music specialist as well. And he had already decided that Atlantic Canada was the site to sort of focus on as a, as a pilot project because there's simply so much music that's been documented in Atlantic Canada, uh, as well as some fairly major disasters, um, particularly in the areas of industry, such as mining disasters in Nova Scotia, as well as quite a few marine disasters, um, particularly related with the fishing industry, but also the oil industry in the case of the Ocean Ranger in 1982, for example. So he decided he needed a a music specialist in Atlantic Canada and found me and asked me if I would be interested. And I thought, sure, why not? Not knowing that it was going to take me into this new direction entirely. And I'm here a couple of years later with full intentions to continue in this research for a number of years. And I'm completely fascinated by what we're, what we're doing right now. So what has the research process been like? What's involved for you at this point? What we started with is we, we started by compiling a database of disaster songs. We just wanted to get a sense of what kinds of disaster songs were out there. And we started with existing publications of disaster, uh, not of disaster songs, but of, of traditional songs, many of which include some disaster songs. 
And there was quite a bit of active collecting of folk song and traditional music in the early part of the 20th century. So we actually have a fairly extensive collection of, of songs from that era. Um, however, for me personally, I've been particularly interested in the songs that we started to um, document and, and trace since about the 1960s, because there haven't been as many uh, collections of traditional and folk songs that have come out since that time. And I think I've been particularly uh, fascinated by the fact that disaster songs continue to be written, and in very large numbers, uh, about quite recent events. So, for example, there was a, a mining disaster in uh, Nova Scotia in 1992 in Westray, and we have something like a dozen songs about that. Um, even more recently, in 2009, there was the helicopter crash off the coast of Newfoundland, and we have about five songs about that. So I've been quite interested that disaster songs continue to be extremely important to society. This is not something that's just people used to do in the old days, but something that is continuing to be an important part of our, a social response to major events like disasters. So that was the first goal, was to start to collect the database of songs. And that has enabled us to start to look at the patterns. So what kinds of disasters tend to generate songs? Who tends to write about disasters in their songs? What kinds of um, patterns do we see in the song lyrics? So what kinds of themes come out in the lyrics? Um, how are disasters re represented in the lyrics? Um, how is music used in response to disaster? So who's singing it and where? So for example, at benefit concerts. Um, so those are some of the questions that uh, we're starting to answer uh, by looking at this data. The other thing that I'm doing in particular is um, part of my discipline in ethnomusicology involves field work. So working with um, people actively involved in the communities of practice that I'm looking at. So I'm interviewing disaster song composers, as many as I can find, and uh, that's an ongoing process. And so I've, I've interviewed a number of uh, composers, including fairly significant commercially successful artists like uh, James Keelahan, but most of the people I'm interviewing are amateur singer-songwriters, and that's been very fascinating because there's not a lot of research just on them in general, let alone specifically about disaster songs. And so I'm finding out how did these people learn about the disasters? Why did they choose to write the songs that they did? Why did they choose to write about those particular disasters? Where do they perform those songs and why? What's their relationship to the communities that they wrote the songs about? Uh, and it's been quite fascinating to me as well to see how far-reaching a disaster can be. So it's not just affecting a small local community, but in the case of the Ocean Ranger, for example, which I mentioned before happened in 1982, um, two of the song composers that I've just interviewed um, were from Washington State and New York State. And here they are writing a disaster song, each of them, about a Newfoundland uh, oil industry disaster. Um, so asking myself, well, why? Why did it touch people in these states outside of the country, across the continent, uh, as well as local people? So those are the kinds of questions and, and work that I'm doing with the project right now. You know, it's really interesting that you've collected so many um, songs related to disasters, not only spanning time, but space as well, which you mentioned. Do you have any ideas or hypotheses about why disasters are are a popular subject for folk songs? 
Well, I, that's one of the questions that I ask people about when I'm interviewing them, and there are different answers. Um, of course, uh, probably the most compelling um, feature about a disaster is that they're, they're good stories, I mean, they're quite tragic stories, but they're very dramatic already in and of themselves. So they they become relatively easy fodder for uh, writing a song about, especially if it's going to be in a, 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 court, a sort of ballad-type song that tells the story of the disaster. But I think the other thing is that uh, disasters evoke very strong feelings in people, and it's sometimes hard to know how can we how can we respond to those events? And also, that I think sometimes we're not even sure why we respond so much to events, especially if they're not uh, directly tied to us. We're not living in those communities. Uh, we don't know people who died in the disasters or families affected by them. So why should we be so affected? And yet we are. And I think that songwriting and the disaster songs, the popularity of disaster songs, is partly an effort to try to come to terms with those feelings, to try to express them, and to try to work through them. So it becomes a kind of moment of catharsis for a lot of people who both write write them and who listen to them. So Heather, I mentioned to you that our um, April-May issue of our kids' magazine, Kayak, actually featured a graphic comic about the Edmund Fitzgerald and then as well the song written by Gordon Lightfoot. So I was wondering if you could sort of shed some light on um, this song or the event based on your other research. Sure. Well, this it's quite an interesting uh, situation. I think the most interesting aspect of this song is the change that Gordon Lightfoot made recently, and you've noted that in your in your story of this. So that when information came to light, that changed the understanding of what had caused the disaster in the first place. So instead of it being human uh, human error or crew error, that there was something else that had happened. Uh, that Gordon Lightfoot made a change to his song to reflect that. Uh, that's been an, that's informed a question that I've been asking, and this is part of my colleague Joe Scanlon's interest. He's very interested in how accurately do songs represent disasters. So the fact that Gordon Lightfoot would change his song is strongly indicative that, at least for him, he's trying to be very accurate in how he represents that disaster. Uh, and so I've asked a number of songwriters whether they would change their songs if they uh, found out later some change, some different kind of information than what they had originally understood about the disaster. And it's been interesting that there's been a variety of responses. So some people say, yes, absolutely. The, the integrity of the history is what's most important. We must maintain historical accuracy in representing the, uh, the story of the disaster in the song. So they would change it. But other people feel that the integrity of the song is more important. And they say, no, once they've written a song, the song is its own thing and that it's not really very easy to go back in and change a lyric or a storyline to, to reflect something differently because that wasn't there in the composer's mind at the moment of the song being created. So that's been quite interesting to, to explore. And I think the other thing that's really interesting about um, Gordon Lightfoot's song is that it's an example, it's rel- relatively recent, I mean, to, to the kids who read your magazine, it's old history, but... Um, to many adults, it's not such old history. Um, a song from the 1970s about the Edmund Fitzgerald is an example of how disaster songs are not just something that is from folk cultures of um, our great-grandparents' ages, for example. So I think that's another uh, really important aspect about the song. 
something interesting that I came across was that um, I believe he said that he didn't change the lyric, the copyrighted lyrics, so the written lyrics that are out there, but he changes them when he performs them live. So in that case, then you're looking at, you know, sort of the written word versus, I guess, perhaps more the type of work you do in terms of doing field work and speaking with people and looking at sort of these intangible traditions that exist. Yeah, and it raises the interesting question of copyright as well. I mean, that's part of the the reason that he's made that decision is because of how our copyright laws work, I think, is why he's done that. Uh, And we tend to think of traditional music, including songs like ballads like his, as somehow outside of copyright. And so that brings us up right smack against that, that kind of issue. Um, and certainly the issue of print and orality is really important in this issue of um, disaster songs as well. I mean, first of all, we're using print sources in order to find disaster songs, for example. Um, but the other thing that's very interesting is that when I've been interviewing people about the songs that they've written, I've asked them where did they find the information about the disasters uh, that they're writing about. And many of them, it comes from newscasts. So for many people, they are listening to news reportage of the disaster at the moment that it's happening and are inspired by that to write a song. But many others also actually do historical research using um, particularly books, but other forms of research as well, in order to ensure that they have a grasp of the events of the disaster, but also the impact of that disaster so that they can portray something of the emotional aspect of the disasters as well as the, the, the sort of more factual details. So there is that interesting use of print to inform an oral um, practice. Heather, do you want to tell us a bit about the website that you've put together for this? Sure, I'd love to. Um, we have a, a project website uh, called Disaster Songs, and it's a very simple URL. It's just disastersongs.ca. And what we're doing there is we're trying to provide some of our research data back to the community. So we have uh, basically divided the website according to kinds of disaster songs. We've folk- Our fo- first pilot study was on mining disaster songs of Nova Scotia, so we have a collection there. Uh, and then we have a rather gigantic one coming up on marine disasters, and it's definitely in process, so there's quite a bit of material up there, but there's going to be more. And then we will also add, um, as we go along with this project, some of the other disaster songs that we also have in our collection, but in smaller numbers. So things like lumbering disasters, railroad disasters, airline disasters, all of which have generated at least a, num- a few songs. And we, because we just have literally hundreds of songs and we can't put them all up on the website, what we decided to do is, at least to begin, we have focused on disasters that have at least two songs that we know about. So those are the majority of the songs uh, that you see on the website will be uh, grouped around the disasters that they're associated with, and you'll see at least two with each one. Some of them we have uh upwards of half a dozen, even a dozen, depending on the disaster. So, for example, the 1958 Spring Hill mining disaster in Nova Scotia, we have close to a dozen songs there. I already mentioned Ocean Ranger, West Ray in 1992 is another one. So some of them have generated a large number of songs. Other ones, not as many. Um, I do have a number of songs up there associated with disasters, for which it's the only song we know. Uh, but that's also partly because as I've been interviewing composers, sometimes I've taken the opportunity to interview somebody regardless of whether uh, they've written a, a song about a disaster that we have another song about. So sometimes that's getting up there on the website as well. 
But basically, we're presenting the, the lyrics there. I haven't been putting up audio files largely due to copyright issues, although maybe at some point in the future I'll be able to work around that a little bit. And I'm trying to present some information about well, the context of the song as well as the, the composer. And there is some information um, about each of the disasters that the songs are about, as well as a sort of overview of the area that we're talking about, so the an overview of mining, for example, in Nova Scotia. There's also a forum attached to it, and there's information for getting in touch with any of the uh, scholars involved in the project. And it's actually been a very valuable tool. I've had a number of people write to me as a result of seeing questions on some of the songs, songs where I knew about the song, but I didn't know anything about who wrote it, for example, or I knew the name of the person, but I didn't know anything about that person or how, where they were or um, anything about their bio biographies. And so some of these composers have actually written to me out of the blue and said, hey, I saw that you have my song on your website. If you'd like to interview me, then here's my email. So that's been incredibly valuable, and other people have um, told me about songs that we don't have up on the website, so we've learned about other songs we didn't know about that way. Uh, so it's a way, it's a kind of a tool for both sharing the results back to a community that might be interested in this topic, but also for getting additional information that's valuable to the project. It really is a fantastic website, and I'm happy. I sort of just stumbled upon it myself, and I'm glad that you uh, you have that up there. It's a great resource. And Heather, I just wanted to see if there's anything else you wanted to speak about, or if if you have a favorite part of the project, or something you've learned so far, or a favorite song or event that maybe we should all go look up and learn more about. Oh, that's so hard because there's so many wonderful um, songs to to talk about. Uh, and some of the some of the pieces that are so interesting for me are still uh, in development, so they haven't made their way onto the website. But there's uh, a couple that I would mention. I love a song called Spring Hill that's about the 1958 Spring Hill disaster I mentioned before by somebody named Brian Vardigans. And that's listed on our website, and there is a link as well to his website that has a recording, and it is a stunningly beautiful song. Um, the other song, I have not got this on the website yet, but I would really encourage uh, listeners to go and listen to it because it's so gorgeous, is a piece by James Keelahan, who I mentioned before, some, one of the people that I've interviewed. Uh, and one of the songs that he wrote is called Captain Torres, and Torres is spelled T-O-R-R-E-S, about a shipwreck that happened off of Cape Breton. And it's uh, it will make the hair on the back of your neck stand when you hear the story behind it and you hear the song and it's available on YouTube. So you can just do a search on YouTube for that and you can stay tuned on our website because that will be uh, one of the songs that I will be adding into the, mar the marine section of the website. Well, thanks so much, Heather, for speaking with us about this and for opening up our eyes to this uh, really interesting work that you're doing over there. Well, thank you so much. It's really wonderful to be able to get this research out of the academic institution and into the general public, so I'm really delighted that you're interested in it, and I would encourage any listeners who are interested to get in touch with me about it. I'd be very pleased to talk to any of them uh, who might have questions or might have any suggestions for the website or for the project. We've been speaking with Heather Sparling, an ethnomusicologist at Cape Breton University. My name is Joanna Dawson. Thanks for listening to the Canada's History Podcast.